This is the Garden School Podcast. I don't know where to pause that one. Peace. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Garden School Podcast. I'm your host, JD, and I'm having my good friend Miles back for a conversation on the Torah. Hopefully this starts a recurring tradition here at the Garden School. Well, every Friday we get together and we record an episode on a discussion on a particular portion portion from the Hebrew Bible. If you like this, keep listening and... uh, This is actually a nice kind of a historical moment here on the Garden School Podcast, but we've officially been accepted onto iTunes. So please follow us there, and you can rate the podcast and comment. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. And remember, cultivate your garden. Like we must. All right, my brother. So we're doing our first Torah portion today. Yeah, so, um... So I want to just make sure that I got everything right. We were, I read, um, I went to Chabad.org, like you said, and then I think it's actually all connected. It's actually kind of nice, the, the, um, like the way they do it. So I, I did Nitzvahim and Vayalech, which is from Deuteronomy, and then it goes right into the Haftarah, which is from Isaiah, right? Exactly. Okay, excellent. So, so that's the three, right, um... The three divisions of Torah, right? Just just for the start, for the most obvious stuff, right? The the Pentateuch, which just means the five books, right? And that's the five books of Moses, uh, right? Exactly. Then then the Kedivim, I think, is the word, which means um. I think that's the one that means like the writings. I don't know why they why they don't um, why they don't have it why they don't kind of include that in the weekly readings, but but the, those are like the books at the end. Like um, one of the most famous ones is like Esther, right? Um, I'm not sure. Let me let me even just look that up kind of quickly, just because of how they separate that. Yeah, uh, I, I forget what they call that section because I know Isaiah is from the Book of Prophets. Right? Yeah, the Prophets is Nevi'im. It is Kedivim or writings, um, like I said. But um, it's also called hagiography, right? Which would, which would essentially just be like um, like I guess uh, or hagiog- hagiographer, which would be like kind of saints. But it includes Ezra and, Nezim, and, and Nehemiah. It, 
um, it's the shortest by far. Um, one Chronicles and two Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah is um, is when a community is reestablished. It's a kind of important book. Maybe we can talk about some other time because it's when the the tradition of something like a weekly or um, a kind of um, perennial reading is established. Oh yeah, that, that's so funny you say that because I was just going to ask you that. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the history of how how far back something like this tradition of reading um, and then talking about it goes. Yeah, I mean, we can even talk about that book in addition to where um, we next, because that's just, that's, you know, kind of where the myth of rediscovering the book, and then, um, you know, kind of, um, I think if I remember correctly, Ezra is kind of associated with the book, and Nehemiah with, with the kind of preaching or the, or kind of public liturgy, so they each have, they each kind of have like kind of parallel roles. Well, we, we can talk about that next week, but the very simple, the, the, most, the simplest and the most kind of crucial is um, after, you know, um, you know, hundreds of years in diaspora, it's a return to traditions that, that the people have been somewhat alienated from um, in this kind of um, ritual of reading or this ritual of reading the books that have just now been established, really. Right. Because, I mean, during during most of the rest, it's one of the latest, late, late, latest books that's going to be included in the corpus. A lot of the the rest of the writings are complicated in terms of kind of sometimes at least proposed simultaneously with the events they describe. So can you repeat right. that last part about uh, whatever you said? Because for some reason, you've been breaking up lately. Yeah, um, I just said um, it's just one of, the, one of the latest books in terms of um, what's most crucial is going to be um, not the description of something as it happens or a description that that proposes to be contemporaneous with an event being described right almost like diary entry style yeah because you know they're they're very um you know and we could talk about just the very you know later on just kind of very simple periodization you know like the babylonian captivity you know that there's this history and there's this there's a sense of um of, of many many of these these of the writings being being written at, or at different times and then obviously later different um, gathered times, up by different, by, by, different t- yeah what? right you know I was gonna say like different times also different um different places right D- different geographical location locations of exile yeah right yeah so that's like, usually you know so there's like period of the Babylonian activity uh, captivity is a big one. Um, the you know the, the Persian period is a big one. The Assyrians, uh, right, which kind of sets off Isaiah, right? I think um, doesn't Isaiah become the a prophet during the uh, during the the Assyrian exile? Well, during the during what, what uh, that's the very early, right? Because the um, the Assy- are, are earlier than 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 because Isaiah's um, usually broken up into three parts, right? So the first. Aim, uh, Isaiah the prophet as um, a person um, is um, exists during that time. The reign of I think it's Hezekiah, and that would be during the yeah during the um, um, war with Assyria and, and during the time in which they're conquered essentially by Assyria. Um, Isaiah is the only prophet to appear in the Pentateuch or um, in the in the Book of Kings, so he's the only prophet who appears in his own person um, in one of the books. In the sense um, that he's actually like an embodied character. Um, yeah, he's the only one who's at least in the you know in in the in the five books, which are really the kind of um, 
foundation upon which everything rests, even though the prophets are much longer. And it's kind of repetitive sometimes too, but there's just, there's, it just the, I guess it, it kind of, um, it's interesting because uh, it's like, you know, Midrash or later, a kind of Talmudic commentary was, it's probably, you know, five times as long as, as the whole thing in general, right? Right. But the prophets are, 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 if you ever kind of see the prophets separated from, um, from the Pentateuch, they're much longer. What do you think? Why do you think that is? Is it you think there's a reason? I think it just kind of um, it just kind of um, very simply sort of corresponds with um, that you know the experience in time, you know the the um, kind of um, primal scene or like the the kind of mythic situation is described in the five books and the various exiles cover a much wider range of history. Although most of the books aren't, aren't going to be talking about necessarily the, the historical event, events themselves, or they're going to mix them up, but they're going to use many kind of poetic conventions, often kind of drawn from the main material in order to kind of pray for a kind of renewal. And that seems to be like one of the important factors of like the Hebrew Bible, right? Is like the, the reflexive or repetitive, or I'm not sure of the perfect word, but like it seems like each. In, in every section, there's a letter or a word that's directly connected to another section. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of, like, um, yeah, the, the, I mean, repetition is kind of the entire bog game in terms of reading um, kind of biblical material. Um, narrative repetition would be, right, obviously an, an event um, um, reoccurring in some way. Right. But even the, the writing itself is paratactic rather than hypotactic. So a lot of poets, for instance, like a Walt Whitman or something that um, has a strong paratactic bent in their sentences, which means the sentences are parallel rather than um, rather than sort of subordinated um, to some kind of endpoint. Right? It's kind of it's it's just a way to describe parallelism in sentence construction. Right. So, and um, you know, like, what's that? No, I was gonna ask an unrelated question. You can finish your point. But yeah, that's the whole ball game, because right? that parallelism allows certain things. Uh, it allows a chiasmus, which is reversal, right? Which is one of the main things that 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 that, that might occur. Um, it allows for intensification, right? Because the same thing can be repeated, but with a, with a new emphasis, right? Um, it allows for a, a formula that kind of um, aids the memory, obviously, right? Right. right. Yeah, but um, what, no, what yeah, I was going to ask you was: uh, Is there like a head rabbi that chooses these portions every week? Well, the portions—I don't know exactly when they were established, but they're established. The whole diaspora—they're kind of a one of the things that's they're not chosen, in in, in they're they're um, grafted onto a calendar, right? So every week is going to be—it's kind of like um, you know, it's um like a holiday or something right that i don't know exactly the system works i just you know established you know an ezra nehemiah but um but the same portions are going to be read by by you know by rabbis all over the world um and how according long to the same kind of and how long do you think the, the commentary has been going on right like i know that the um the link that I read has all the commentary by Rashi, which was writing, I mean, it's so interesting that he's writing in the 11th century. 
and then all these rabbis yeah. at that time, which are mostly in, in Europe, you know, like some of them trace themselves directly to the, you know, directly to like the, the, the lineage of David or, I mean, or Joseph. It's just so interesting, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a persistent feature, you know. It's the, like um, the commentary is is part of the um, is part of the religious experience. Yeah, it's part of the it's part of the it's part of the the continuity. Um, all the contributions after the canon gets closed are contributions of commentary, right? Um, that's kind of what what allows for the. Um, for, for the continuity to begin with, right? So I think that's I mean, interesting, though, right? Because and I was thinking about this yesterday when I was reading, right? And I and because I noticed one of my, and I think this is just like a weakness of of intellect, right? When you don't know certain, when you don't know everything about about whatever an issue it is you're discussing with another person, um, you tend to analyze and then and then like the, what my brain does is compare it to things I already know, right? In other words, I tend to I go right for an analysis. And I was thinking right. about what I was reading yesterday, and I was thinking to myself, right? Commentary is not the same thing as an of, uh, as like analysis or, or argument, right? They're not trying no. to prove anything. There's just a certain describing, right? Yeah. Well, that's almost like um, it kind of goes in a very, um, and this is why you'll see so many Jewish great you know intellectuals who who are more interested in in, um, in darker darkening the word. Rather than, than 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 elucidating it and kind of um, kind of relating to the the Steiner I read yesterday, Steiner, the great kind of European intellectual, kind of combines. We'll talk certain, about that for a minute. What do you mean darkening the word? I just mean um, by um, when you know I kind of brought to Steiner who said one of the one of the goals might be to make the word stranger. So what I mean is uh, <clears throat> rather than making the word transparent, which is to say that. Um, any of your um, mm. intimations about what it might mean um, are obvious and they relate to a kind of an immediate context and they don't need to be considered. Well, there's um, like an ownership involved, involved in that too, right? And the, the elucidation of something. You can claim it, then you own it, you feel you feel comfortable because you've, you've convinced your brain that you know, right? You've kind of thought through it. Yeah, well, there's a kind of narcissism in it, in this, just in the sense of, of merger, which we've also been talking about, in the sense that something which has a, a distinct value, and you can apply this to anything. You can apply it to studying animals, how you interpret the actions of other people, but something which has a very kind of, a, a kind of um, you know, the, in the beautiful words of Henry Vaughn, a dazzling darkness, which is a mysterious quality, and also that these things that are shut off from you in a certain way, mm. right? That 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 they that they resist any easy handling. Mm. Um, they're too quickly grasped, and and there's a constant fear of that. I think in in most good writing, is uh, you know. Um, the proverb, you know, easily got, easily gone, you know, easily got, easily lost, you know, as the proverb kind of goes, right? Right. So, you know, that which which you which can be kind of gathered up in a day isn't going to sustain you. Whether whereas when you read the Bible from like what's what's called the you know figure figural point of view, where um, where you emphasize certain uncertainties, certain mysteries certain kind of um, opaqueness or, or, or what's unclear that will sustain you much longer than 
you know, sucking all the all, what you what you think to be all the juice out of it in a day, and then and then you know, and then spitting out the rest, you know. Right. So the mystery is what sustains us, right? And I mean, you can look at that from so many different angles because when you know a thing, you get you kind of get tired of it, and you tend to want to move on from that thing, right? Well, like the novelty is gone. Yeah, absolutely that, and then there's also a sort of violence of possession. Yeah, violence right. of possession. Which is to say that I'm going to shrink the thing I want down to my own proportions in order to fit it in my back pocket. Right. But what you've taken really has very little resemblance to whatever it was you wanted, right? Because, right. I mean, hopefully you wanted some quality of the thing of the thing that, you know, has some, that is the thing in itself or something beyond your having, right? And all religious, um, all religious kind of thought is going to circle around something that's a little bit beyond your grasp or else you wouldn't come to it you would you would remain in a mundane or a common sense sphere right where where where, where the things are more propor- proportionate to, to whatever um to, to your own kind of um, mechanisms of grasping you know yeah absolutely so and that's a big thing too with like you know when when, when they say i'm we're going to distill the message and toss aside the book which is you know, kind of part of the spiritualism movement, which loses a lot, you know, it's not terribly different than, you know, Soylent Green, you know, if you remember that kind of, the idea of like, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, because uh, foods are a greatest metaphors, but, you know, we're, we're no longer going to eat, we're going to have pellets in a, a, you know, or tang or something in an out, and we're going to get more nutrient than we ever did when, when there was all that mess of food, right? Right, where at, yeah, right, where, and I think that's the one interesting thing about, um, like, the Jewish tradition is the religion is the active nature of the commentary of reading the stories. It's, it's the, right, it, to use the food analogy, it's not just the, the nutrients of the food, it's, it's either growing it, going to the grocery store, buy, or the market, buying it, coming home, the preparation of it. The, right. The, the the sanctimony of the of the of the meal or the the festival right. nature of the meal or the feast, and that whole thing is what makes up like to me the Jewish tradition, right? And that or that's what it that's what uh, the religious experience is, and the transcendent is in those actions. Exactly, and and then and, you know, and that's really the greatest kind of um, you know you can get at this in, in a number of ways, but that's that's where the split between you know the Christian experience. And the Jewish experience really kind of shows itself most clearly is in you know the Ju- Jewish Judaism being related to an anti-apocalypticism, um, and then Jesus is is very complicated because he always he kind of speaks in a paradox because he's both come to fulfill the law he says that the law being you know you know the, the six hundred however many it is mitzvot you know this very elaborate sense of coding which is Deuteronomy um, right which is what we'll talk a little bit about today. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, really, just the book as such, right? That the idea that formality has to, um, um, ha, you know, precedes the reader, right? Formality um, precedes the reader. Yeah, but and, and and you can slowly see the breakdown as you read through the prophets, especially because you see how um, how the cults, how the cultic leaders essentially abuse their powers. So over time, um, there there becomes a tension between the text as is, and the um, the interpretations. Um, yeah, the, the yeah exactly the the liturgy the the um, 
Um, yeah, exactly. The, in other uh, words, like a li- living the the living embodiment of the text, which is where that kind of Christ metaphor comes in later, exactly, right? Exactly, which is the split the split between Protestantism and, and Catholicism, essentially, right? Where right where Luther will ask to return to the book as is. Um, with the added on Christian notion of, of, of grace or inner light hermeneutics. Right. Judaism has no interest in inner light hermeneutics. Um, it has an interest in inner light, but, but not the notion that, that every man can read the book on their own um, to the same degree that Christianity has, has, has a, um, an, an unmediated direct line to God, right? Right. Or the trappings of a Catholicism, which are very elaborate formality, you know, very closely related to a kind of more paganist kind of um, ceremony. Right. Yeah. In- like a real, um, a real dependence on the mystery. Right. The mysterious quality. Well, uh, um, that, uh, the mysterious quality embodied in a Through- in a living. And kind of gaudy, right? You think of Catholicism, with the, and not even just gaudy, that, that shows my kind of inclinations, but sometimes very beautiful or... I mean, it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's much more, right? Because, you know, Catholicism prides itself on, you know, it almost represents the glory of God in these very um, powerful ways, while, you know, Protestantism classically is going to emphasize the humility, right? right? A sh- like, you know, God what was is as happy to, to visit a shabby church as he is, you know, the, 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 you know, the Vatican. Uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah cook a uh, Catholic mass with the incense and the, the, the act of eating the body or the body, drinking the blood. Exactly. Like, there's all this exactly. distance. That's which that, is all very closely related to something like the mystery schools or, um, right. Or, you know, the Mithraic mysteries or, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries or like, you know, the various mystery schools where something like that would, you know, the body of a deity being incarnated. These things are very, it's much closer to, to a, a kind of paganist worldview, right? Which is, you know, one of the, one of the reasons why um, Catholicists um, often are very interested in, in certain kind of um, paganisms, you know? Right. Whereas, you know, I mean, um, Protestantism is going to be much more suspicious of the image. It's going to desire to be iconoclast in the sense of destroying an image in the way that's kind of much a little bit closer to what Judaism, Judaism doesn't, uh, uh, obviously, is the root of, of a, a major distrust of the image, right? Right. Uh, in the sense of idolatry, right? Right. And then, yeah, Catholicism is almost dancing with images. There's so many images, and they're beautiful. There are so many images, and they're beautiful, and and they'll, um, you know, there's still, uh, you know, it's still Christianity, so it'll it'll always imagine a, a, um, a way to kind of utilize the image, um, to get beyond it, right? right that right. you know that that we play with these images, um, in order to transcend them, rather than rather than a paganism that, like the beautification of a saint, right? The whole point is not to celebrate his humanity, but to celebrate his transcendence. Yeah, well, yeah, you would study the likeness of a saint exactly to um, to fuse with that likeness. Right. Right. The beauty would be, um, if, if beauty depicted, right, the images of the saints are, are, are kind of you know, rather terrifying, right? kind of kind of grotesque. But, um, but yeah, you know, you would you would be much more interested in um, in identification in a kind of religious identification. Um, with a, with a certain mythic mythic kind of quality, um, 
which always relates back to the to the duplication of the original acts incarnation in Christ figure himself, right? That that's always where it leads back to. Right. So yeah, definitely it's gonna be a renunciation of the world, but it's much more worldly for instance. For the Jewish tradition. No, for Catholicism. For Catholicism. Judaism too, Judaism too in a different way. Just because Judaism, um, you know, the famous quote from, I, I, it's probably several places by Maimonides fame, famously, is uh, the Mashiach will tarry, right? That this world is all we have, right, in a certain sense. And even in a certain sense in the, in the prophets, uh, any idea of a paradise is going to be this world remade, right? Right. Um, this world that, redeemed. I think about that a lot in, in terms of just the... the um the uh, durability of the Jewish people, right? Like, it's definitely... You can't help but notice that their religious philosophy informs their their, their work ethic and how they're able to go anywhere now and throughout history and, and not just um, survive, but they, they kind of... They really thrive wherever they go. Yeah, yeah. And that's complicated. I mean, the, the two most obvious things I would think are, um, you know, obviously this dedication to the word. To the uh, word? It allows, I think it, it definitely, um, it allows insight, I think, into into um, certain depths. Because even what I just said there, to, to have a sense of, um, I guess, like, what would be, you know, like a polyvalent sense or like, um, you know, or like, you know, what you study is like a, like a multivocal quality, right? How in every utterance there are these, there are these very complicated several strands, right? You're going to have a richer experience of the world if you read the world in that sense, right? In which, in which every utterance is not merely itself, but in which there's all these, all these layers of, of, of meaning that gather together, right? Right, yeah. So, right, like for the, for Hebrew, if every letter corresponds to a number and then you assemble those letters to make words, it makes total sense why that the people will kind of um, evolve on a tradition of of, um, of suspicion of, of these emanations, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's one way to put it definitely too, right? Because um, all the elucidations usually, right, like that, that, that the words can be considered in terms of letters isn't really uh, doesn't really reveal it in the way to say it is so it's just another complicated way of reading right so when you multiply the way of the ways of reading something the thing that you're reading becomes more obscure right right it doesn't lead you to clarity at all <laughs> it leads not you at all. right not back whatsoever. to fucking confusion oh yeah exactly that probably exactly. is also why um Right, like you get the stereotypical Jew that that is just kind of anxiety written, really can't act at all. Yeah, yeah, I don't know when that when that you know half stereotype, half reality comes into being. Um, but yeah, there's always there's the the obvious notion of that you know of a hyper reflexivity, right? Which 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 comes from occupying language from from a from a plural perspective, right? Right. Like, 
you know, like, you know, you're talking about something and, you know, you're you're half outside of it. Right. It's why we love Larry David. Right. Because he's not really the fool. Right. He he's he's sending up all this entire social order. And at the same time, he's playing himself deliberate, deliberately as the same thing as like the Marxist brothers do. Right. He's the absolute fool who also has just sent up. He, he just he understands the entire social order in a way in which he doesn't he's not correspondent or simultaneous with it. Right. Like he doesn't take it just as is. Right. All those kind of arbitrary codes aren't just they don't just kind of like, you know, cling to his body like a form fitting garment. Right. They're kind of they're, they they kind of don't fit at all. You know. Right, I mean, he kind of embodies the um, the commentary, right? Like, that's right. Well, that's right, and that's you know, that's what psych- psychoanalysis also, um, you know, very closely related to commentary, obviously, right? And you know, postmodernism, right? What 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 are they doing? But come well, right. study. I mean, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud is obviously Jewish, and so is Derrida, obviously, right? I didn't know Derrida so, was. Yeah. So um, yeah. You know, so Sigmund Freud, who, who has this um, essay called "Analysis Interminable," you know, where he talks about the the you know the the, the potential for an unending commentary um, that that's always possible with any patient, right? So meditations like that get us back to so here the, know, ta- the 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 um, the patient becomes the substitution of the Torah itself. Exactly, which is exactly, still a Jewish yeah. idea, right? Because the whole the whole connection is the, the Torah is the corpus, right? It is the body. Yeah, and there's also a sense of the word itself in exile, which goes back to this how we were talking yesterday, and that people are double um, by nature, right? So the word is always double by nature, um, which is best understood in tautology, right? Which is how you when you explain something as itself, right? So God. God's being I am that I am or in the Hebrew something more active like I will be that which I will be right creates this this, this, this situation for commentary to begin with right but doesn't this almost like it reading reading this and talking about this from a modern perspective doesn't this too doesn't this kind of uh huh I'm, I'm listening oh I'm sorry I got interrupted um, doesn't it? Doesn't all of this, when you look at it from a modern perspective, doesn't it kind of uh, almost spiritualize the act of studying grammar and reading itself? Yeah, well, that that would be, and that kind of gets back to um, what we were talking about 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 appearances being the interesting thing, right? Appearances being the interesting thing, yeah. Well, even like the word like um, partsufim is going to mean something like the attributes of God or the attributes of God's face or presence. His presence is going to be, you know, personified as a woman in terms of like the Shekinah, right? Or, or the land in terms of Beulah in the, in the chapter we read, which is crucial to William Blake. The, um, presence is always synonymous with, what, with, with appearance. And appearance is going to, and yeah, and grammar is going to be something like um, the particles um, you know, a, a grammar of appearance, right? Because that's what, exactly what it is, it, the inchoate message, which we can't understand even without, without, without uh, moving into this realm of appearance, right? You know, um, we can only understand it in the negative, right? But so It kind of reminds me, maybe I'm wrong, of that, I mean, of just this, the Socratic notion of forms, right? 
Yeah. Um, or there is you know, when you read like um, when you read something like uh, um, which one? The Timaeus. There is a kind of notion of deity in a in a, in a different way too. Um, or a kind of panpsychism, which is the sense of the world being a living being. But the difference would be that um, there, you know, um, the forms are much more accessible. In Judaism or in the Greek tradition? In Judaism, in a frightening way, which creates situations like the golem, like well, what's called the covering cherub, which is one of the um, precursors of a Satan figure, which is somebody who who misapplies the principles of creation, which does actually kind of relate to this kind of platonic idea, you know, of a demiurge, right? Which is just to say that if creation itself is in some ways contained in the grammar, then it's imminent rather than being purely transcendent, right? Where the platonic forms are always purely transcendent, right? We cannot reach them. What's the difference? Oh, and, okay, in other words, the, the imminent ones are within our grasp. Yeah, n- not not to the same degree that they're employed by God, but that it's the same language that we just speak weekly. You know that if you know if if, if the, the principle of creation is somehow already inherent or imminent in, in the structure of the words we use themselves, then we we then there is a sense in which you're always um, creating, just maybe in an inferior way. This is like the myth of a Metatron, right, sitting at the right hands. You know, Enoch being. Uh, being taken up in the sense of man at the right hand or um or um the original adam right in the sense of 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 a perfect grammar right which is a a, which is a huge myth that runs throughout not just religious thought like any but also um european sort of um what's the word um enlightenment thought the idea of a of a of a uh, just in purely secular terms, the idea of a universal grammar or the possibility of a language that might transcend all languages um, or a language of the universe. Even when people say that math is God's language. Right. That's exactly right. what I was going to mention. Right. Which is, you know, it's um, it's a mysterious idea, right? I mean, it's not like um, – I think it's more mysterious than the people consider it to be, right? Because math has nothing to do with language. It's, it's, it's a metaphor, right? Um Math is but, a metaphor in a way that language is, is not. What's that? You said math is a metaphor. The idea of math as a language is, is a you metaphor, know, the, the mapping right. of one domain onto another, right? Right. Because, you know, because if it were a language, then God would be deliberately manipulating, you know, mathematical properties in the way he does nouns and verbs and... And he can combine or, 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 you know, reconstruct language, right? Yeah. Man, that's a lot. That's like my brain is trying to process all of that and having a really hard time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking about very distant things, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, um, it's interesting building a, a, a Lisa space for yourself um, for these kind of um, unspeakable things or unutterable things. Right. Because there is this kind of act of um, revelation where when you engage in the discussion and I think maybe this is part of why the tradition of, has st- stands so strong, right? I mean, it's been going on for thousands of years. There's something revelatory in just the act of discussing. 
right? yeah, that's within actually, the you know, common probably, yeah that's the most what maybe the most crucial thing of all exactly but um the act of discuss discussing and just the sense of um you know like there's a beautiful basket passage in ruskin in which he talks about the the rust you hear me i think i cut out for a second yeah you cut out for a second you hear me? I, I yeah i heard i hear you now were you just about to go into a ruskin quote yeah i didn't even go in so just the notion that the rust um the rust on a knife being what it's made for or not a failure of the thing itself but um but the accrual of kind of use value mm. right so, so like, he kind of talks about the the, the sense of uh, sense of what? I'm sorry, I think you cut out again. Oh, I just said just just the, it, it, what's the question? This I didn't hear the last part. You said sense of something and then cut out. I think you said sense oh, of oh, use. just value. I yeah. said that right. Yeah, it makes me th- well, like anything else. Like, like the dust, the dust that collects around an object. Um, actually attributes to it, right? Right. That that so that made me think about when or you were... the lines that appear in somebody's sorry, just the lines that appear in somebody's hands or face are telling lines that might allow you to understand them better than if their hands than, than if those things than if those kind of um than than if those things were not there, right? Right. And then what I was thinking about was it's it's like the um through the reading and through the commentary and um, through the discussion, you arrive at confusion. And maybe confusion is that dust, right, or the rust. Confusion in, a, in the brain is actually a good thing because you're thinking through something. And maybe that's the process that is the transcendence, right? Like that state of confusion is... is yeah, um, well, I mean, so long as you're talking... So long as you're talking about something that's a live issue, you know. You give me an yeah. Well, can can you give me an example? Yeah, anything. I mean, like, I mean, if if you're in a relationship with somebody talking about how it failed, it's still a live issue, right? You know, when it comes a day when you're not bringing it up at all, right? Uh, um, the the. So um, the disagreement keeps the you know the the disagreement is really the um, well it keeps possibility hanging in the air right it keeps possibility exactly the day which two rabbis ag- agree you can shut up the te- you know the whole thing is done you know yeah there's almost yeah it, that tension is is um, prerequisite for the function of what it means to be religious yeah and to contain disagreement. In a civil, um, creative sort of um, context, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. It's almost like a, it's like sparring in a way, or it's like exactly. a, it's like a sport, right? There's all these. It's so formalized, but there's all this free association involved. Yeah, well, I, you know, that was a big thing for me after my adoption. You, know, I, I did taekwondo as a kid, where I got like my black belt, and then I was on the wrestling team. But I always found the people that did those things were much more peaceful, generally, right. than the people who do them, you know? Not always, but generally, you know? Well, it's like the whole Rogan uh, ethos that he talks about a lot, right? Like, the, the, the more you train in the martial arts, or the more that you kind of engage in, in, in a respectful combat, the, the less you'll seek out, right, like, um, that real kind of aggression-driven combat in the real world. It actually makes you, yeah. 
lock, lock. Yeah, and, and and his whole thing, you know, and his and his, you know, every age has a certain characteristic. If you're looking at things like a Hegelian or like a right or even, um, you know, even a certain kind of biblical point of view, right? That that, that considers the world in terms of periods, epochs, right? So we we live in an age of physicalism, right? So um, so we're we're interested in the purely physical or the body, you know, because because the mind is um, the stranger in this period of time, or, or the pure spirit is, uh, and this is always a dialectic, right? That there are always ages. If you look at things this way, in, in which one aspect or another of of, of experience is going to be dominant, just like when you meet people. Um, one aspect or another is going to be dominant, unless right. you know, unless you know, the rarest case somebody's had a chance to develop each. You know, right, right, and I, that suspension of arriving at a certain specific set idea, I think, is also like um, a path to wisdom, right? Because you you're always kind of suspended in this um, in an, in this act of. Um, of thinking, right? You're still, it's like a, an eternal working through the problem of, of, of existence. Yeah, well, that's why wisdom is going to be offered in parable. Right. Right. Or in um, parable or paradox, exactly that, right? So. Right. right. Which is not terribly different than, than you know, than the idea of. Um, being told something that doesn't make sense until experience confirms it to a certain degree, right? And it's like one of the most classic stories of the of a generational kind of, uh, 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 you know, kind of uh, miscommunication, right? Is you know when you're you're 50 years old and then you realize the things you know you know a parental figure was telling you when you were 10. All of a sudden they 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 make some kind of sense, right? But they they but they didn't necessarily until until a certain point, right? Right. So if we um, Deuteronomy and Isaiah, right? The first one is is um, Deuteronomy of the laws, right? Deuteronomy, right? Um, and this particular um, section that we have is it's kind of like a really crucial section. It's, it's interesting we're starting this week because um, it just it's leading in essentially to the last word of Moses, right? Which is right where he's kind of stepping down and giving, or, or not giving. It seems like they're kind of they're they're t- not taking it from him, but right, like John um, is stepping in. I'm sorry, um, Joshua is stepping in. Right, right, right. There's there's a kind of um, so there's right this- jo- Joshua who will right effectively lead the people over uh, the River Jordan. Right, right. Would you know the, that kind of great boundary? Right. right. So there's this transference, which is there's kind of interesting because it's a continuation. It's like what we're talking about. There's right, like that's an example of like the the continuation of the word. Right, right. Um, and then there's a sense of a uh, nitzavim vayelik. Right. So, um, I, so, so I think so. No, I was going to ask. What, I was just going to ask. What, what is the? What do those words mean? So um, I didn't know until until but, but until I looked just um, at the you know prepare for this week. But Nitzavim means standing, and Vayelik means he went. Standing right? and he went. So you know these are words that are just coded 
in, in metaphoric kind of um, value, right? It's always good to like just maybe even look at like a strong concordance, which is a great, you know, or you just look at all the metaphoric or the other usages of, of, of the of the words, right? Kind of gets back into a Derrida sense of only the ways in which the words are used in other contexts right. explain their entire weight, right? Right. right. But you know, but it's obvious enough in a certain sense, you know, um, that he's he gathers the people and they stand together. And that's that's what the early part of the of, of the of the section of Deuteronomy is going to be, right? The gathering of these kind of um, very different kind of um, of really everybody, you know, the the the, um, the sojourner, the little ones, even that the covenant's going to be made with those people who aren't there, right? The, the exiles moment, right? returning. What's that? It's the um, the idea of the exiles being able to return to the land, right? Like that. And I guess you can connect that to um, when the whole group unites. It's not just the group in the present. It's it's everybody, right? Yeah, but that's like the the, the famous line, right? Um, it's that the covenant or the you know. Um, I'll just use the, the 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 just to make it easy, just the kind of translation here, because I also have my um my Robert Alter stuff, but. Um, but this is, you know, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. So the sense, uh, um, so the sense of standing, uh, standing um, in for something that is to come, but also being the necessary sort of um, remnant that allows something else to even possibly to, pos- to be possible. Right. Mm. Right. So this doesn't only concern you, but if you weren't here today, it couldn't concern anybody else. Right. So you are actively a representation of of uh, your ancestors, of those that have been exiled, and right. If right. You, just you being here kind of brings them to the forefront with you. Exactly. Exactly. That's um, a really cool idea. Yeah. Um. You know. Then it kind of gets into. Um, you know the same thing. You know these kind of this like this accusation that you know the detestable things, the idol worship, um, turning away from God, right? Because turning is going to be one of the most crucial metaphors in this entire thing, right? I noticed turning- a lot of that. There's a lot of reference to garments, clothes, covering and uncovering, turning. Yeah, definitely. Returning. Yeah, definitely. And, we can get, and that, that's why I told you that you know that. The apocalypse in the sense of galut or the sense of covering or, or galah in the sense of uncovering and then you know the subsequent words that, that stand for covering right. um and it gets to you to the is really the, one of the central metaphors that runs throughout right right one of the ways he's often going to say it is he he hi, god often says he hides his face uh, when 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 uh when israel is, is backsliding right that's one of the ways he talks about it, they, what's hidden right right and that's a really interesting metaphor, the hiding of the hiding the face of God, or God hides His face um, from His chosen people, right through times of um, of turmoil. Right, right. Well, you know, it gets back into this whole appearance d- dynamic again, right? Because um, I think someone in the book about appearances talks about like the face is like the peninsula, or like. It, it, it's, in some sense, it's this thing that extends out from us, with which we kind of uh, manifest this kind of wide range of appearances, right? It's this kind of um, 
it extends from the rest of the body, and the body sometimes described in metaphors closely, close, closely related to darkness, you know. Um, but the, the face is heliotropic, right? In the sense that the face opens up. Right. Uh, well, it's you also know, like it, to me, it reminds me of this idea of like when people really kind of go go into the dark side, whether it's with drugs or any kind of vice. We we right, we always say they kind of lose themselves, right? As a sense of like uh, there, there's a turning away from their own, right? From their own their own face kind of turns away from them, um, and there's a real loss there. Yeah. Right, and it's like all of right. If if um like in, if God in this Peterson sense is kind of like a the principle that governs and when like you lose yourself completely it makes sense that like all governing capacity is really completely gone from you or in a sense it 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 has turned away right um yeah that's much more a christian kind of sense you know in that sense of the logos as the govern as the governing thing right um I mean, you know, the most obvious thing to say, right, would be all of God's uh, suggestions are are always of self, right? Are are always that, what? Um, I'm sorry, you broke out again. They're all. I mean, always. You know. Um, I mean, um, I just you have to be careful what what of what you mean exactly by order, right? Um. And how that relates to, to, to a certain kind of uh, to a certain kind of uh, righteousness of a certain kind, right? right? But there's also there's also a notion of um, um, I don't know exactly how to say what I'm saying, but um, so I, I mean, how are we going to bring in Peterson into this? No, I guess I was just trying to make sense of the metaphor um, of God turning His face. And I guess I was just trying to look for it through the eyes of um uh, of like a biological sense of like when you when as an individual if you're caught up in in just living bad like and you know with vice or addiction or anything that you know you shouldn't be doing by your own measure there is a kind of turning away from yourself where you are kind of like almost locked out of your uh your your own decision making right yeah um I think and, this and, is and maybe gonna, that's not connected I, but that's just the way. My brain was trying to um, trying to make sense out of that. I, I, I'm sure it's kind of off. No, it's. I don't think it's off. It's just like, just like if you work first, like um, like intertextually, right? It's like, you know, the the, the easiest way to think about. It, I think is that um, God only reveals Himself to the patriarchs face to face, right? After after his encounters with Jacob, he never again will reveal himself face-to-face to any of his subjects. Why right? is that? What's that? But why is that? That's because what what the way the story operates is in concentric circles of exile. So there's first the exile from the garden, then the, you know, the exile of, of obviously Cain and Abel, then um, the, the ways in which, in which an, a certain kind of immediacy is lost. So by this book, obviously, um, Moses only only will, will encounter God in in his um, sort of um, I can't remember the word. There's the word for the for the kind of uh, manifest appearance, right? Obviously, the burning bush, uh, 
you know, a God, a God making himself manifest in, 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 a, in a kind of event like that, right? So the burning bush. Right. And then Moses obviously famously has the lisp, right? Where he cannot... Um, He's got like a, a stutter or something, right? Exactly, which is, you know, a, a very obvious... Uh, a very obvious sort of um, figurative device which talks about his inability to to not only understand any originary message but also to relay it, right? Right. That's a really uh, fascinating component. And, and the splitting up of and and the splitting up between him and Aaron of um it's like you know the beginning of the bureaucratization of the world, right? The splitting up of and and, and especially and eventually Joshua too who become like a the war leader, right? The the splitting up of these various um, functions um, of, because, like, of, of, of a total human experience, right? Right, and that's kind of um, the the progress of, of these wandering people into become they become more established, right? They there there comes like you said, like an, a bureaucracy or an administration, and then they kind of work themselves yeah. into a nation. Exactly. Well, yeah. Right after, just after this is going to be the book of the judges, right? Right. Where, where the, the the entire time there's a great there's a massive warning against any administrative or any hyper logical sort of construction, right? Because the notion is the more, in some ways, that that men start to govern themselves. They they have become distant, at least in, in, in this kind of fairy tale or, or in, in this kind of biblical um, logic, with the with the governance that was provided them. Um, first in immediate encounters, and then next with obviously the tablets, right? So well, the more- self governance. Oh, oh, what's that? I was gonna say it seems like the well, the, like the more men govern themselves, the more that strangeness disappears, right? And everything becomes a human matter. Exactly, exactly. And that's what the book's really getting at, right? And it gets at that in a very deliberate way, in these very step by step, um, in uh, kind of movements towards from the you know the essentially very loosely um, agglomerated kind of. Bedouin-like existence, right? Right. Look at the Abrahamic existence, where all the, all these trappings of administration administration aren't necessary. Um, and then, obviously, that's much closer to the to, to to where they are when they're wandering. But but there's a little bit more administration, right? There's this separation um, between Aaron, who's the mouthpiece, and you know Moses, who is the charismatic sort of. Um, 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 how do you want to talk to him? Who talks to God, right? So there's there's one more distant distancing device, right? Then through judges, then judges, then through the establishment of dead of the kingdom, right? Then the kingdom gets split, right? Right? You know the the, the and then that's what we'll talk about with Isaiah, right? That's the Assyrian kind of dilemma is the, the splitting of the northern tribes from Judea, right? The splitting of Israel and Judea, the, the, the two tribes from the, from the ten. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole, one of the kind of, like, the, the big, bigger narratives kind of that's, that's in, in an interesting way throughout this book is um, this notion that things would be better without leaders but every time things go disastrously wrong, leaders are necessary. Leader, yeah. In order just 
Well, so, seems... you know, it's like, you know, I mean, the, the whole book of Moses is, is very comedic, right? He's telling the people not to fuck up over, oh, oh, that's the entire story, right? He says, if you don't fuck up, we, we're not going to need all this extra stuff. You know, we're not going to need all these, you know, all this stuff is not going to just do this. He said, just keep to these, this stuff. Don't bring anything new into the picture. Just keep it simple. To just do the every time he something something goes horribly wrong where somebody fucks up and then okay so now we have to build something to protect against that. Well, that's why to me the Jewish story was always uh, completely parallel to the human story. Well, I mean there there is no story about the human story, right? There is no story about the human story. Yeah. In various oh. ways of getting at it, right? This is just one very effective way to get at it, right? So do you want to get um, – do you want to start talking about Isaiah or do you have a different – you want to go somewhere else? And you, you, you lead the dance, Papi Chulo. Uh, yeah, we'll just finish um, – we'll just finish up by uh, um, this uh, Deuteronomy. Um, you know, I love this. This is, you know, a twenty nine twenty nine. you know, it's just what we're saying. Uh, things hidden are for the Lord our God and things revealed for us and for our children forever uh, to do all the words of this teaching. But this, this this sense of um, there is also that um, in terms of cer- certain Judaism, right? Even down to maybe certain philosophical strands that we'll talk about later. But this suspicion of curiosity being a net good in itself. Judaism has a suspicion of curiosity being a net good of itself, and is that where the image of the snake comes in? Um, well, the image of the snake comes in just a couple pages into the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't ask that right. But is that like that would be? But that would be an example, right? Yeah, yeah. But but there's just also a sense of um, just of leaving it be. You know, a sense that you know that you know. Um, that things are very fragile. And tenuous, you know, and that, and then rather than trying to get to the bottom of them, just being having a sort of gratitude that they hold whatsoever sometimes is the right attitude, you know, or kind of prudence in that sense, you know, right? And, that, just, and that's where, like, the um, just that I guess again, that's where the concept of the commentary would come in, right? Because, because essentially, yeah. sometimes what these rabbi what these rabbis are holding on to is, is like literally a word or or one word or two words within the whole passage, right? And it, yeah, we back to the, the 19th, 19th century notion of Nietzsche in an abyss, right? Right. right. So the notion is very simple. It's, it's not to romanticize the abyss. It's to say just don't – you don't want to figure this all out. It's a, it's a, different, a whole different reason to say rest on the surface. It's right. a, the secret things of gods will always be gods, you know, will always belong to God, Right. Um, and, and, you know, people have different, you know, they're, they're obviously even in Judaism, there's a strand of or a kind of mystic strands that seeks to transcend that separation. Right. But, but, but it is a, a dominant strand of, you know, of, and I think there's a certain kind of person that I admire who, you know, I think, maybe, you know, in this, um, the man of the world, as they say, you know, whatever is at the bottom of this is not even for us. 
So don't waste it. You know, learn learn how to dance. Learn languages to communicate with other men and habits of men and women. You know, whatever's at the very bottom of this has nothing to do with us. That and it's just one respectable kind of way, way of thought. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Uh, their life is layered with intricacy upon intricacy and your own your own particular life it is laid with so much complexity and intricacy where if you just spent your life focusing on those things it would take you a lifetime to get even half good at any of them or to figure yeah, out anything a, about any of them yeah, exactly yeah. The, yeah yeah there's something very similar to the the kind of like greek notion of of knowing you know being being tied to disaster of a certain kind right you know, William Blake will even extend that to wisdom. You know, wisdom is is what you do not want. You know, when you, when you have wisdom about, you know, it depends exactly how you break down wisdom. But when you have wisdom of what becomes of a man when he loses everything he loves, or wisdom of what poverty is, there's a or wisdom of there's like a real tragedy involved in that, right? Yeah, you want to avoid generally too much wisdom. Right, even like you know, what uh, one of my uh, one of the teachers in my school has a line in a book which says, you know, poets fear nothing more than they fear wisdom. Right, right, and again, that kind of even goes back to my my thought earlier about the, this state of confusion. About that is kind of like the religious state, right? Because you're su- you're suspended in in this act of not entirely knowing, but not entirely not knowing. Exactly, and which is very funny, right? Because People who, you know, you know, kind of like that kind of um, unsophisticated branch of like the Sam Harris or the new atheists, they associate all religious thought with with absolute certainty when the, the entire point is anything but, you know, the, the entire point is has nothing to do with with certainty of the kind that they think it does, you know? Yeah, totally. So, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely what you said. And just and, you know, kind of very much. um. You know, it suggests that the desire to know, and this is where Bloom is kind of in a pause state, or he'll compare himself more to the you know figure known, known as Atcher. You know, the, the, there's this whole strand of apocalyptic Judaism that does want to get closer to the abyss. But that is always, even if you're going to go down that route, it's a destructive route. Um, well, that's and, like and that's, the, that's kind of connected to the messianic line in Judaism, right? With this, with the sabotaged V's of the world that. Uh, right, and that it, it, if I'm not yeah. wrong, that's connected to the idea that the, the, the world as such is a, is almost a cosmic exile, and the laws of the world are not to be really followed. Right, so there is a kind of rapture involved in that. Exactly. Well, yeah. What, what he, I mean, I mean, what 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 Sholem's so interested in him is how he reveals this underbelly of Judaism, which is which is anarchical, which is clo- more closely related to myth than it is to law. You know. That there's still all these kind of very violent forces that are just being kind of that are, that 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 are there to be released, right? But someone like is someone like you know, I mean, to say that you're the prophet returned and that all these things are going to find fulfillment in the moment, not tomorrow, but today, right? And that you know that it's yeah, I mean, it's it's a frightening thing that's always um, that's held in postponement. Because at any moment it can erupt, and, and usually when it, when it erupts, it's, it's fairly disastrous, right? Yeah, yeah. What did so, what did Zabbatai do? He stormed the church. He stormed the, one of the holiest temples naked, sung a song about right. a woman. 
Right, right. and he said he's the second coming of Elijah, right? Which is like the Mashiach, essentially, which is, <laughs> yeah. the, which is like the Jesus figure of, of, of Judaism very much, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, and even the book of Amos said that, like, he, I can't remember exactly the quote, but maybe we'll get to it in our readings, but he says, you know, he says, you do not want the day of the Lord's, essentially, to, to happen. You know, the day of Lord's is a, is, a, is a kind of euphemism for the apocalyptic day, you know? That day when when the, when the veil of, of reality is torn aside and you see God in his real aspect, which is disastrous, right, in the Bhagavad Gita, that's disastrous in, in you know, um, um, in the story of, like, um, I think it's Zeus and Samil when she says, come down to me in your, in the, in your real form. It's... But that that day in which you know truth is, r- arrives in a sense that's not mediated is usually disastrous. You know, you, I mean, usually you want to avoid that. Well, it seems that that just that ultimately is is chaos, formlessness, right? Uh, the abyss, because uh, it seems like the more you think about um, what it means to be human, or what it means to just have be, what it means to be a life functioning on Earth is a. Uh, it's the particularities, right? There is all this separation between everything from everything else, and that well, separ- well, this, in, in particular, it's going to be an order or something that is beyond your ability to contain it. So, it, I mean, it's going to it's going to plunge you into disorder, even though there very well might be an order in it. You know, you know, there, you know, the, the, I mean, the the storm that destroys your house. I mean, there's going to be a, a, a you know, a, a, a needle, you know, there's going to be, this, that storm's going to have a, there's going to be an eye to that storm, it's going to have, it has its own proportions and its own kind of order, but that order has nothing to do with your human order. Right, and it's, it's really, there's, well, not, not that there's no point, it's actually disastrous to seek out that order. All right, or to try to become one yeah. with it. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, and this goes back to the, another Chestertonian point, right? Which is to say, it's not poetry that drives people mad, but logic and certainty, right? The day somebody understands something is the day something's gone dis- disastrously wrong. Like, look, I'm going to show you why the Jews control Hollywood, by, and then they have all these graphs. <laughs> that's a... That's a <laughs> yeah. That's a great. The second time, it's not the when when someone takes out a book of poetry that you worry. It's when they take out all those graphs yeah. and they say, "Look how all this information necessarily suggests such and such." Right. Well, I, we're living in that world right now, aren't we? I mean, in, in so many different ways. Well, we're always in that world. Yeah. I mean. Well, I guess that that goes back to that clash, right? The the um, the clash of the manifest and the scientific, right? That seems to be the the human condition. Yeah, yeah, and, and just people have always uh, hungered after a certain kind of certainty. Um, well, that's kind of where the Jewish story connects the certainty with the, the, the leader, right? The leader fulfills that certainty only to um, become authoritarian or just to c- kind of corrupt the group absolutely. Yeah, yeah, well, so much of the... So so many of the su- suggestions are simple are simple taboos in a certain sense, right? Like, it's funny the the, the few things that are suggested, right? Because the thou the thou shalt's come after the thou shalt nots, right? Um, 
thou shalt not eat of the tree is the first thou shalt not, right? Which is which is not which is seek knowledge to begin with, right? We didn't do well with that. What's the first thou shalt? Thou shalt surely die, I believe, is the first one. Really? Yeah, thou shalt surely die now that thou's eaten of it. Um What's the one thing that we're commanded? Be fruitful and multiply. That does almost have a biological re- resonance, right? Yeah. I well, mean, there's it's a obvious. Cer- there's what's a, the one? What's that? No, I was going to say, I mean, there is a certain wisdom and um, an, an admiration that I think, well, at least I have, the, the, the older I get, in people that aren't interested in kind of any kind of interior life, that are really interested in just working getting married having a family and let letting that be enough to sustain their you know their curious nature yeah um yeah i mean um i i i just want to just just like you know revert to cliche and some say something like it takes all kinds or something like that you know um i don't think that kind is necessarily superior to another but I mean, yeah, it's, I definitely think that, that there is a wisdom in it, that, that there is, um, that it's nothing to be, um, you know, to raise, to, to, you know, what's, what's the expression to raise an eyebrow at? Is that it? Or is it raise something else at? I think you're yeah. right. Well, I think not, not, maybe not, maybe wisdom is the wrong word. There's a wholeness in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, every life has its certain kind of, um, there's always a, a matter of exchange, you know, every life has its certain costs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and this is one one of the another area where I where I divert from like a kind of a moralist who'll say you you need to do such and such. I, I'm kind of more along the lines of you can do anything you want, but but there is going to be necessarily a cost. And um, many family men late in life realize they haven't done anything that they that they um, they wanted had hoped, to, yeah. and that will be a cost. And and then there's the case of you know famously like um, many people like a. Uh, I think you know. I think one of the famous examples, like Flaubert, who late in his life said that you know he all he wanted, he wished he had a child, but instead he produced this whole body of literature. Wow. You know? Yeah. It's kind and of... there are different ways of being fruit, and then there are people who do neither, and you know. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. Uh, That's the problem too with dishing out wisdom or or thou shouts is right. There's there's a myriad of forms out there that seem to kind of exist in their own particular way with their own particular right there's like an interesting chinese proverb that every family has its own bible and it's that's an interesting i really think that's fascinating when you think about it when you think about it yeah exactly and very few people are very good at that right kind of stepping away from um whatever model might have worked for them right right um but you know i mean the best case scenario is when you have something like um What's in Chaucer or in Shakespeare or in Dante or, you know, or different characterologies, right? Where you imagine many different character types and possible outcomes. And then you hope people are exposed to that. What becomes of the kind of ambition associated with the, with the Macbeth? What becomes of the kind of interiority associated with the Hamlet or the sort of intelligent playfulness of a Rosalind, etc.? And these kind that can help people that can help guide people along the, uh, along their own you know thoughts about who they are and how they're developing while not being so didactic in terms of you are such and such right um, it, uh, the Wittgenstein way to say it would be forms of life the the Kenneth Berkway is equipment for living 
which is that you have these models which allow you to both consider possibilities you didn't know were there and to really kind of just think about it in terms of like a thought experiment, what might become of this thing that I'm, what I'm doing, right? Mm. Yeah. But if you know what you're doing and it's going to lead you to a place where you don't have a family and you don't have anything, you can do that. Maybe you're the man for that, that there have been many people who come through the world who are the man for that. And if they would have been with, they would have blown their brains out. They would have found themselves, you know, you know, balancing a kid on their lap and say, and saying, you know, honey, I just, you know, the new boys episode is on Netflix. You know, you know, uh, you know, uh, Vespucci's pasta is going to be here by six. <laughs> I can't play eight. You know, that that is hell for a lot of people. Whereas whereas the other things hell for others. You know. Yeah. Well, that's why uh, I like the. Um, I really like that the. the that Jewish idea that the begin uh, the beginning of wisdom is the f- or fear is fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? Yeah. Um, Just that, that that notion of um, well, I guess the, the fear is that kind of that the, the confusion, right? The not necessarily knowing, right? There's a certain anxiety that comes with that, which I think you can associate with fear. Yeah, well, that's exactly right, right? It's like the whole thing kind of sanctions. Anxiety, you know, you know, even the 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 like the, the kind of clearest, the clearest expression, right? Well, that but, would also, uh, that I guess that would also make sense why uh, why Judaism kind of views curiosity just for the sake of itself as a as something suspicious, right, or to be kind of looked at askance, right? Because fear would yeah. be the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I always thought that too, right? And this goes back to the sense of the veto and especially the fairy tale logic to me, right? Which is to say the fear of God is essentially that uh, a fear of contingency or chance, right? Which is to say that things are not going to unfold according to any... You always have to be on your toes because the world, is, uh, the, the world op, uh, operates by a principle that's not simultaneous to what you think. The furthest thing from a sense from the world being a meritocracy, right? It's not merit that's going to get you where you want to be. And it's not even like mindfulness or it's not even preparation, right? Because you could prepare for one problem and then um, and then you, you didn't think about chance well enough to understand that, 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 you know, while you were preparing for a storm that a fire was really coming, you know? So... Um, well, it's kind of cool to think about all of this in the context of of like Deuteronomy and Isaiah because, right, like after the laws come, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but do the prophets come right after the laws? Well, Deuteronomy is the last book. I mean, most of the laws are really going to be like um, kind of priestly additions in Leviticus. Right. And Deuteronomy is going to carry out the story of Moses, which is going to close the which is going to close the Pentateuch. Right. So okay, I guess because what I was thinking was, um, it's interesting that after all of the thou shalt, if the prophets come after that, right? It, it's like uh, even when we 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 make the laws for ourselves, um, there's always going to be that voice that um, that carries salvation because we're probably not following those laws that we just gave ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And and that voice, the, the the way that voice is going to be described is the bot coal. Um, the, the bot coal. Coal's voice, bot is daughter, like bot mitzvah. So bot coal is the daughter of a voice, 
or the echo of a voice. Wow. Um, the remembrance of an original utterance. Once again, back to the Wordsworth notion or of, of, of something prime, of a primacy which cannot be retained but has to be recalled in terms of, of its echoes or resonances or that or or um, or something secondary, you know, just like. Um, you think that's why they always ref- that, you know, this is always I, I notice a repeat the, the children of Israel. Yeah, right. It's like definitely. one of those phrases. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the well, the the um, you know, the, the Pentateuch ends with the da- with, with with dancing daughters or essentially the song of the daughters. Wow. So, um, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, because because that's the the continuity of the nation is going to be going to be explained. Um, but let me let me just kind of provide a quick note for this kind of um, from twenty nine twenty nine right. So that's the one that says things hidden. Uh, uh, things hidden are for the Lord our God, and things revealed for us and for our children forever to do all the words uh, of this teaching. Right to so the notion of God's hidden things. So this is uh, what Robert Altered says. He provides a little footnote. Right. Um, so he says uh, this grim promise of future disasters if Israel betrays the covenant ends. If indeed the sentence is in proper, proper place uh, with a nomic declaration, what the declaration actually refers to is disputed. But if the relevant context is the preceding passage on idolatry, then the consensus of the medieval Hebrew commentators is plausible. Acts of betrayal hidden from the eyes of others will be visible to God, and he alone can, can exact retribution from them or for them. When such acts are committed publicly rather than in secret, it is the obligation of the community to take steps against the perpetrators. One must grant that this construction of the verse is not assured and the difficulty is compounded by the fact that the two Hebrew words, which mean for us and for our children, have a row of dots about them in the Masoretic text, advice often used by ancient scribes to indicate erasure. Wow. So, you know, I mean, and then, and then, you know, kind of goes in one sense into what we're saying in, in the sense that... Um, you know, that some sense of right or wrong which is synonymous with God is going to be absorbed into the merely social or what's now what we would call constructivism today. And that what's punished in the future is going to be what's in, what's in public, but that there's going to be, uh, but, but that, but that the, a logic of what's right or wrong is also going to exist beyond public. Right. Yeah, I mean that's um that places so much responsibility on the human, right? In action, all the possibility in the human, and one of the obvious flaws, even though uh, uh, a destructive somebody who wants to, you know, reorient um, our moral sensibilities, is that they still have very firm notions that there is such a thing as right or wrong, right? Uh, maybe un, um, maybe some uh, often sort of um, taken for granted, right? That that they want a strong moral hierarchy because they need it to suggest what's right or wrong, but they want to uh, sort of um, examine um, um, exactly how that falls into place, mm. right? You know, so so that so that's kind of you know. So even even in this kind of kind of modern secular environment, people are going to lean on some transcendental notion of right or wrong, right. which is really what Kant 
spends thousands of pages trying to figure out how that's going to be, how there has to be a transcendental basis for right or wrong, right? Um, that only then takes its place in the, in the human sphere, right? And I guess one way you'd be able to see that is through history, right? Well, history is going to show you um, definitely all the, um, you know, different form, form, formal arrangements for, for you know, for, uh, the ways the morals shift. Right. And, and yeah, and the way the ways that you know. Um, well, and I guess that's kind of the function of the um, the prophets too, in a sense, is to make sure that the what's right and wrong, or right, um, these kind of moral laws continue on every time the people seem to lose sight of them. Definitely. Um, right. So I guess that's, 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 that, a, that's maybe that's a good seg to get to the prophets and just very briefly talk about the prophets and then kind of wrap this up, right? That'd be awesome. Yeah. But um, I guess this is the last thing I just want to say about this just before we go is that, you know, chapter 30 is going to do with um, kind of begging people not to turn back to their, to, to their former state, right? Um, and even the word error in our language has a notion of wandering, right? There's a notion that whenever we wander, we're in error, which is the notion that, that once things were right and then all these steps were made, or every experiment in some sense is an error in the sense that, that, that we turn left and, you know, and, and, you, can, and you can really it kind of, you know, make very obvious kind of practical uh, justifications of, you know, in my 20s I made all these mistakes and now I know such and such and if I didn't make those mistakes, that's the through line that everybody kind of pursues, right? right? yeah. But um, but yeah, even the word turn back is very close to the word for captivity, right? And that's what someone like a Robert, almost everything that, that, that is of kind of substance um, in, the, in the Hebraic has to do with word plays, right? So, um, and, and usually punning, and this is another reason for, 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 for a certain kind of quality of Jewish humor, which relies heavily upon the pun, which is another d- doubleness in any term, right? Right. But... But there's a ton of punning. It's one of the most common devices, right? So, um, you know, even the sense of turning back and captivity being simultaneous, right? That, you know, every, every time you turn away from this, um, from what's been revealed, you're returning to some sense of, some possible sense of captivity, right? Mm. Um. Yeah, and then I, I just love this part too. Just uh, I love, um, I love when it says, um, "It is not in the heavens to say who will go up for us to the heavens and take it for us and let us hear it that we may do it, and it is not beyond the sea to say who will cross over for us beyond the sea and take it for us and let us hear it that we may do it." But the word is very close to you in your mouth and in, and in your heart to do it. See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil, that I charge you today to love the Lord your God, to go in his way, and to keep his commands and his statutes and his laws. And you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God shall bless you in the land into which you are coming to take hold of it. And if your hearts turn away and you do not listen, and you go astray and bow to other gods and worship them. I tell you today that you shall surely perish. You shall no, not long endure on the soil 
to which you are about to cross the Jordan to come there to take hold of it. I call to witness for you today the heavens and the earth, life and death I set before you, the blessing and the curse, and you shall choose life so that you may live, you and your seed. Uh, to love the Lord your God, to heed his voice and to cling to him, for he is your life and your length of days to dwell on the soil, which the Lord your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, uh, to give to them. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, but I just... um. So much of the book, I could see why somebody today that wouldn't wouldn't enjoy reading it because some of it's very fascinating in terms of poetry and narrative, but almost like sixty percent of it, it, it's just exhortation, you know, it's warnings, and not and they're very clear exactly, you know, exactly what where the warnings come from, but they're very fierce, A lot you of know, fierce ambiguous warnings, right? Definitely, um, this is my favorite. Uh, should you should your strayed one be at the edge of the heavens from there shall the Lord your God gather you in and from there shall he take you uh, that's the, you know even the furthest limits can be gathered up again right it just it reminds me so much of like the, just the, the voice of consciousness in your head it is nothing but war- I mean not nothing but but so much of it are all these prophetic warnings on if you don't do this and if you don't do that and if you don't tend to these things then there are going to be these these other things that arrive that you you're not going to like one bit and you right like and you better get moving well that's like socrates socrates um his um his revival of the concept of the demonic or his change right where for socrates the demonic is the voice uh, of the supernatural, but the demonic only tells him that which he cannot do. But it's very different, right, from the superego in a certain sense, because the first thing it tells him is not um, in, a, in in accordance with what the um, the authorities of Athens are suggesting, right? So, so this, it, so it is a sort of fatherly prohibition, but that prohibition might not. Um, be consistent with whatever prohibition is dominant in your culture at any given time, right? Right, that's a good point. So, yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely very interesting. All right, um, want to want to work our way into Isaiah a little? Yeah, so we'll get into Isaiah. So, um, so when we when we come back to Deuteronomy next week, uh, Moses is going to finally depart, right? So that's what's going to happen next. Is the big, the famous scene in which he. Uh, you know, one of maybe one of the most tragic in some ways, one of the most tragic uh, events in the Bible, in the sense that Moses himself will not be allowed um, to cross over. Right, that that he'll only see God's back parts. Right, his vision will be a vision of um, even to the very last. His vision will be a vision of the alienated or the exiled. Right, he won't be able to you know to take partake of the fruit of his labor. You know, right. But again, that, that just kind of, for me, goes back to this idea that the exile is the religious experience, right? So that maybe is the most transcendent state, because it is that state of kind of confusion and, and suspension, right? Definitely. So that even that, even that it, it's tragic in the, in the world of, in, in the human world, but, right, in, in, the, in, the, in the, right, like, uh, to use the metaphor of the, the laws of God, it, it's actually perfectly aligned. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
So Isaiah in Hebrew means God is salvation or something like that? Yeah, I, I think something like that. And he, like like, like we said, he's uh, the only prophet to appear in um, the historical account, right? So that's one of his... Um, one of his uh, crucial sort of uh, 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 aspects, right? He's kind of like the, the prototypical prophet in some ways. Um, let me see. I'm looking for... Uh... Yeah, so let me just say a few things, right, about the prophets, right? Go ahead. Uh, so just some very crucial stuff to know about the prophets, right? So... Um, So, okay, hold this up. So the illusions are obscure, right? Uh, the language is baroque and violent. It's hard to tell where an utterance begins and where the next, where one utterance ends and the next begins. Yeah, it's very right? like stream of consciousness. Yeah, it's a very messy structure. Uh, they claim to speak in the voice of God or a source beyond the self, right? Um, and this emerges not from assertion, but from the effacement of the prophet's own voice. Right. Well, talk about that for so, a second. It's because nobody's listening to the prophet that the prophet continues to speak. Um, partially, but also, um, but also the prophet isn't it isn't as if we think of prophet in, the, in a lot of upside down or backwards terms now the prophet doesn't gain clarity or superhuman power to say things uh, a la assertion it's the opposite much more like cassandra uh, in the greek text where the prophet's voice is um is effaced which means um it's troubled often often the prophet's body is even kind of like, especially I think in the case of Jeremiah, if I remember correctly, uh, even the pro the prophet will be almost um, damaged in a certain kind of way, right? Uh, because they are trying to represent the state of affairs which has gone terribly wrong, right? So, in other words, like the the prophet is kind of a, an embodiment. Right or like an anthrop or a personification of um, of the the predicament. Exactly, and the predicament is that the word of God hasn't reached the people, right? Right. It's the prophet isn't going to recover that with beautiful, with perfect rhetoric and come out speaking like Cicero. The prophet himself has to bear. A greater knowledge of how debased the word has become, and that's why the, the, even the the utterance is going to be confused and effaced and distorted to a certain extent. Right, and then that that makes sense to me why that why uh, it seems like the prophets are always, yeah, like I said, not stream of consciousness, but this kind of meandering, directionless warning after warning. Yeah, a lot of repetition, exactly. Um, and they and ends right they they have a certain kind of um they're commanded almost to bear a certain kind of sickness in public i think there there's a lot of uh, relationships to like the figure of like diogenes the cynic right uh, or the sense of uh of somebody bringing to the fore a kind of twisted uh, condition 
right? So uh, being a kind of physical embodiment of what's being hidden by kind of slick slick talkers in a certain way, you know? Right, like there's something um, visceral and, and honest about um, the, pro- the prophet and the prophet's speech. Definitely, right? Uh, so another thing is that the prophet doesn't foretell the future, right? So they're not going to say this is what happened. Um, it's better don't. to understand them in, in the terms of forth. They don't. It's better to describe them in this in the sense of forth telling rather than foretelling, right? So once again, the same thing we're saying. Um, they're embodying um, a sort of a sort of glee state. A what state? I you keep breaking up. A god, I said a sort of godly state. That the, the words from Abraham Heschel calls a divine pathos. So uh, the, an inner conflict of love and wrath, right? The prophet embodies the inner conflict of love and wrath, right? Right, like he he clearly is is warning them out of love, but there is a certain condemnation with a with like a right a look what you've done. Exactly, which is why a lot of people don't like to read the prophets. Like, I remember Harold Bloom hated reading the prophets um, because they they are um, I, and I love it, but, but just but, but my temperament's different, but they are endlessly accusatory. <laughs> right. One of my big regrets in terms of my own small sphere of influence is that I think, you know, Gino is a close friend of mine. I think I brought out his prophetic quality when he was much when he was much more effective as an SD. Yeah. Yeah, because all you did was really turn him into a Trump supporter. <laughs> when I turned him into somebody who was always speaking against the status quo, and I think he was at his best when he was just playing Mozart, which he still he still does. Yeah. But for me, I that's that's what I I'm very much in a, almost a nasty way because prophetics is always nasty. That's where I, that's where I relate is somebody and and like um and like um satire is very related to this right. which is real somebody who has no who who describes ugly things and and never tires me you know um a very a a the condition at at its most um pitch pitch peak you know yeah um so um so you know prophet's a greek word um uh, prophetes, I think, uh, one who speaks for or on behalf of, of another, right? So, like, the famous Delphic prophecy. Um, and it's a professional intermediary, thinking the mediation, too, whose task was to uh, interpret and inscribe in verse the mantic utterances of the priestess through whom the God has spoken, right? So this is another degree of remove, right? Because the God will speak through a demon, through a, through a demonic sort of intermediary like a Hermes uh, and then then that would be translated by a priestess right so there's this long train of a privileged translation right it seems also though if we're gonna like um, to talk about the Greeks in comparison to the Jewish tradition it seems like the the Greek tradition is there there's a real seeking out of the prophet or the or, or the priestess where it, it seems that the prophets of Judaism are, are always kind of um, a bit of a nuisance yeah Definitely, that's definitely um, a good a good way to put it. Um, and it has to obviously do with the different um, 
with the with the with the the comfort of being uh, of being city states or right. the comfort of being somewhat rooted um, and, 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 and obviously the condition of a, simul- of a fundamental uprootedness. Right. 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 So, um, yeah, like the seeking out is almost a sense of the, that, that is the exile in a sense, right? If you're going to the Oracle of Delphi, for, to use an example, that you, you, there's a certain exile involved in just going there physically and removing yourself, right? Whereas the Jews that are constantly in exile, the, the prophet has to be one of the tribe. Right where it's an insular kind of uh, revelation and not something that you go and you seek out on some destination. Yeah, that's true, and probably even further. Usually, you're going to be going to the prophet um, in order to um, translate uh, a kind of prophecy that doesn't bode well for you. Right. So all the famous prophecies are about a kind of stability, and stability here is considered the um, fundamental reality. That's possible to lose, right? So you may be a king, and and a son might be of, of danger to you, or there might be something that you, that some kind of danger that you're trying to understand, you know, often, right? Right. Whereas when there's whereas in the Hebraic sense, the uprootedness is is so close at hand, right? Um, it's the it's the primal state of things, and the way they try to they they try to uh, make it intelligent uh, or to uh. They try to understand it through this sense of uh, deviation from God's law, although you know we can look at it dispassionately and say they just were in a, in a terrible uh, geographic situation. Right. They were just a little nation surrounded by the great powers of the world, you know, right. by the three great nations: the Persian nation, the Assyrian nation, and the Greek nation, which are the maybe the th- three of the most powerful nations that have ever swept over. So. So they were really, you know, saw a small river in the middle of these massive, you know, uh, these massive power. It's funny how even now it's the exact same story. Nothing has changed, right? Like I said, that's what you said earlier, well, right? Th- that it, it, it is the story, right? It, it is the story. Um, yeah, so, so the exemplary prophet, right, is Moses. Right, which is another reason the book of the prophets follows after him, right? And same thing, right? From the one to the many, right? He's the exemplary or the kind of model or the archetypal prophet. And then from there, there are particular prophets, like there are particular saints who carry on the, the function at different historical moments, right? So oh. Moses, who stood before God and the people at Sinai when they were unable to bear the force of the divine voice directly, once again, unable to talk to God face to face, right? Right. And then where does Isaiah come in? He is one of the great 8th century prophets, right? So the 8th century prophets are going to be talking mostly about, uh, about, the, about the Assyrian conflict. Um, and, and he's among um, Amos, Hosea, Micah. Uh, those, are the other, those are the other three um, but the book of Isaiah is going to contain writings that are also uh, from the time of the of, of, of from from different periods, especially the Persian period and the Babylonian period. Okay. Um, so um, yeah, so that's just that's another thing about them is that that the, these these texts are um, composed of different periods, right? So, so uh, a lot of it is drawing upon a previous authority 
and you can understand how in one way you're trying to you're pulling upon the authority because of the power it had and you're simultaneously trying to remind people of something you want them to adhere to by pulling upon that that authority right so there's always a kind of conservatism to even con- continuing with it right right um one last thing. in classical prophecy the reader or the hearer participates in events themselves not a future act of god but the immediate transmission of the prophetic word uh the lion's roar in amos's metaphor calling for response and choice uh gets to what i just said right mm. so that the choice that had to be made uh during the assyrian conflict is the same choice it, it is always the same choice even though this predicament uh you know uh brings it to us in a different form right but it's the same choice right the choice is to listen to the laws so you get salvation yeah it really it really does come down to, to being that simple right you know but um but exactly and and yeah, exactly just in a sense of just i guess in, in a kind of profound sense of, of historical simultaneity right so not really a linear sense of this event being very different from the other but real, really, in a sense that the same thing is always playing itself out with 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 a lot with a with a maybe even actually, you know, maybe not in the sense that it's similar, but that this is actually the same predicament, you know. Well, I think even I remember reading Auerbach um, in grad school, and I think if I'm not mistaken, I think that's what he says in his commentary on Moses, right? That like the Jewish stories have this. It's not that it's a continuity of history it's that the historical is in the present moment every time the present right in in every situation history is there it's not that there's some thread running through it it's that it's already it's present with you yeah exactly exactly and that's why you know even though these things were written at the same time histories were being written like 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 herodotus so these people could have taken upon themselves the historical form but they deliberately decided not to, right? And even there's, there, it's always been curious how, uh, in, in many mainstream Jewish traditions, so little has been dedicated to, to kind of particular historical circumstances. Right. Uh, for that same reason, reason you said there is a very, there is a very um, extreme urge to relive these primal or primordial of. Uh, uh, Vent and to whittle everything down to in a certain way, to to to, uh, to these primal kind of um, understandings. That's probably also why um, in, in modern times Jewish people are so tied up in progressive, uh, like right progressive causes, whether it's socialism or leftism or some form of like progressive um, revolutionary activities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this is also obviously the birth of social justice, to be honest, in a major way, right? Yeah, that's what the pro. Yeah, yeah. Isaiah is yelling about the patriarchy. It's just, uh, it, it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's not, it's not Trump, right? Exactly. But, exactly. But what's the and, difference? You no, know, speaking on behalf of the little man and the disenfranchised man, um. You know, uh, yeah, uh, uh, speaking on behalf of somebody other than the um, than the powers to be, right? It's, the, it's this kind of the notion the powers to be have kind of uh, have kind of taken us uh, along the wrong channels, you know? Right. 
I think one point maybe we could end it here is um, this is kind of really beautiful to think about this Um, the context of the the weekly Torah portions are read on Friday right and it's kind of nice going into the weekend just being able to reflect on these stories and the conversations that arise from it right because hopefully that's what happens the weekend is spent in kind of this contemplation or or maybe just Friday night is and then you kind of go into that those next days and the next weeks, um, right? Almost like the 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 apocalyptic or the apocalypse takes place in that moment of the Friday discussion, and then the new right your new vision kind of goes forth after that. So like, well, I don't like, know when when the texts are supposed to be read over the week. I know that they're read on different days in terms of um, in terms of when the rabbis actually read them. Okay. But, but your point still stands in terms of the in terms of the Sabbath or, or Shabbat, right? Um, being a kind of um, you know going back to our concept about leisure, um, sort of a time in which exactly you know because that's the point of Shabbat, right? Is that you is that you're not permitted to do any work, right? So which is very much um, a reminder that there will be a different order of things eventually, right? That not to confuse the workaday world with what really is, right? Right. Um, you know, just as it, you know, when God rested, he, he saw that it was good, right? right? I love I, how he comments, that's his comment on every, uh, af, after every work he fulfills. There's that yeah. kind of, yeah, there's the, and, again, right, what is that? That's commentary. That's commentary, exactly. And the greatest, the greatest commentary is stepping away from a finished thing, and from the entire thing, right? And, and, and that silence is the sanctifying moment, right? It is the moment of, like, cutting the ribbon or the moment of looking upon it. Um, and that looking upon it even being an exile itself, right? Because he's no longer simultaneous with the creation. He says, this is good. And then he departs in a certain way on. from the creation, right? Yeah, almost like a... a completely separates himself from that and moves on to the next thing. Yeah, and that becomes huge in a Luriana Kabbalah, where I think they call it the sim, they call it the sim sum is one where I, I don't know how to say it exactly, but the notion of God withdrawing his presence, uh, being simultaneous with the creation itself. Um, and Harold Bloom tries to, tries to take that terminology and say the same things goes on in poetry. Right? That the poet, the poet's creative um, act is one of kenosis or emptying, self-emptying. You know, which is which is when when Jesus empties himself of his divinity mm. and takes on an earthly body. Mm. So that's when the, the poet, crossing over happens. Yeah, the poet withdraws his presence from the words that he handled, and then gives them to the words as something that no longer are embodied by a certain presence. They're only embodied by a ghostly vestige of where once was a presence, mm. which is why that they can be re, re um, vitalized. You know, if if they were synonymous with the presence already, they couldn't be transferred, right? Right. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, we, we can end here. But was there anything in this in this particular Isaiah chapters that you, that you found interesting in the reading? Let me pull it up. A lot of it's, um, you know, gl- talk about the glory. They shall exult in their lot. 
Therefore, they shall possess their land twice over. You know, talk of everlasting joy. Um, and I think I think the um, like you said, the uh, the garments uh, factor in massively, right? Right. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the it's 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 the opening, right? It is all about. He, he says, um, "I will rejoice with the Lord. My soul shall exult with my God." And then it goes into just a whole list of of descriptions of garment right for he has attired me with garments of salvation with a robe of righteousness he has enwrapped right. me like right like a bridegroom who priest like dons garments of glory and like a bride who adorns herself with her jewelry right right and that's one of the most um you know that's one of the most crucial metaphors that runs throughout all this right is the bridegroom and the bride right being the being God in the world, later Christ becomes the bridegroom, has come to redeem the world. Right? It's just romance, really. It's really just the um, romance. Um, well, that's what I was thinking. Of- yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say. When you just asked me, what did I find interesting? Just the, how romantic the the notions are, and and the imagery is in the opening of of chapter sixty one of Isaiah. Yeah, but yeah, but even the romance kind of, um, you know, that that the whole cosmic drama is going to surround, you know, the prince. Who's lost his former title, but he's the um, he's the honest suitor, and the the woman who's going to have to choose between false suitors, or she's going to be barren when uh, um, f f f um, addressed by a, a false suitor, um, and only that union will, in a magic way, bring um, um, vitality back to the land. You know, right. So you know, such so as the romance here is like you know the the, the genre, the, the the genre of the of like the Odyssey or the epic kind of tradition in some ways. Well, I mean, um, it kind of connects on a cosmic level beautifully to the, the the Goffman notion of the dramaturgy, right? That this is a essentially yeah. a, like a love story acting out, right? Being acted out. Yeah, yeah, um, and it also right, and it also goes into. Um, you know, everywhere where the divine presence isn't is going to be considered in terms of blight, right? right, right. Everything that hasn't been uh, carefully acknowledged or weighed is going to be lost in the terms of um, wastage, right? Yeah. This is also is a, a, a harlot nation or the sort of virgin. It's a, it's a kind of metaphor throughout, right? The, the virgin pining for like a the the appropriate suitor, right? Wow, yeah. When I mean, yeah. When you when you mention that in the context of, of the, the 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 concept of love and the, the big romance, yeah, it makes it, it's uh it's it, yeah. What a stunning realization. There all there's all this um, allusion to yeah romance and and love and the bride and the bridegroom. This this kind of coupling. Yeah, that is, I mean, it is one of the most, I mean, it's probably, it probably reaches its most um, beautiful form in um, the Song of Songs, right? The erotic poem of Solomon. Where he kind of, in, yeah, right, there's, um, I always, yeah, that always was kind of, uh, I never understood who she was that he's referring to, right? And I guess after I discovered, um, well, your friendship and and Sholem and, and these other thinkers, I, I I attribute it to the Shekinah, right, the divine feminine presence of of God. But I, I don't... right, but 
and definitely, and that, and that's like you know Rabbi Akiva's reading of it too. But it also is strictly sensual and strictly intimate, right? The later rabbis wanted to um, censor it because, or they wanted to read it in a purely allegorical way. But it has strong sensual overtones. Like, I mean, it is also um, simply describing, in some ways, um, simply you know. Um, you know, actual kind of sexuality between man and woman um, in ways that are uh, simultaneous with with greater, if you want to even think of it that way, meanings, you know? Yeah. So the sex act gone right, you know, having these large resonances, you know, and it doesn't entirely go right in that. There's a lot of disaster even in that particular poem, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, uh, it's sex in a very real way to go right. It's kind of hinges on a on a. There's nothing short of a miracle, right? Exactly, a miracle, and a certain miracle in sense of um, what we talked about the other day, waiting and anticipation for a consummation. Right. right? These are obviously sexual terms. Right. Um, And the the sense that either things can go too long. Same thing. Obvious dynamics in terms of our reading metaphors. Right. The act fulfilled too quickly, having a destructive, almost almost nauseating kind of thought to it, mm. and the act never consummated, also having its own issues, right? Becoming um, something um, that dissipates or, or that causes despair, in the sense of how it loses its touch with the earth, right? The, the touch with the earth being, you know, here is as as literal as you can possibly imagine, right? Well, yeah, and to go back to the, the metaphors of uh, the, the the earth and the body being the same thing, or earth exactly. as body. Yeah, exactly. So this is, um, you know, you know, um, Beulah will become crucial to William Blake's mythology. So this is the first time um, Beulah, uh, I think, or, or the main mentioned in the so. Uh, For you shall be called my delight is in her. That's what Jerusalem will be named. So. Wow. Rather than desolation, my delight is in her, and your land's the one bedded. Wow. So the one bedded is, is Beulah, right? So um, a sense of um, purpose and fulfillment finally united, you know, like, um, and, you know, like that, that um, the right gesture had been defeated or had lost its way and finally made its home way home like an arrow hitting a certain target or something like that, you know? Mm. Yeah, uh, like, uh, uh, what, yeah, um, we're fulfilling your aim or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Let me just read the end of this and then and then just, just to kind of close up. So okay. uh, this is the end of uh, chapter two. Uh, pass through, uh, pass through the gates, clear the people's way, Build up, build up the highway, clear away the stones, raise a banner over peoples. Look, the Lord has made it heard to the end of the earth. Say to Zion's daughter, look, your rescue comes. Look, his recompense is with him and his wages are before him. And they shall call them holy people, the redeemed ones of the Lord. And you shall be called the one sought out, uh, the city unforsaken. Mm. Um, I thought uh, that's beautiful, especially I think the the one sought out um, in the sense of um, um, I just think that 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 just resonates through so many um, avenues. It's probably probably the the most moving thought in general is 
um, to remember something essentially good over many during uh, over many bouts of doubt, uh, much removal from the thing itself, um, maybe years where the, where uh, years of uh, um, distance between you and that which you want to service in some kind of uh, respectable way, you know. So yeah, uh, I think that that manifests. That's always going to be moving to people in a fundamental way. Is somebody remembering? Um, remembering where their duties lie and the notion of the one sought out or the sense of uh, something, some kind of something true fulfilled after a long period of trial. Mm. I, I like the way that's beautiful. So, yeah. So, yeah, we, 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 we've been at it for a while, but... Two hours, man. I love it. Yeah, so, I mean, so we can go to... So, um... Yeah, very heavy, you know, these very heavy passages. But we set up a lot of ground, you know, so we set up a lot of groundwork so we can talk about this stuff later. But um, Yeah, I would love to do Songs of Solomon. That'd be really nice. I mean, even if that was not uh, one of the, the tour portions we did, but if we just, we we focused an episode or two on that, I would love that. Yeah, we'll have to do that, and then we'll have to do um, Ezra and Nehemiah, too, because that's really the one where, where they establish, like, you know, reading rituals. Right. All right, brother. Well, I love you. Love you too. Well done. All right, let me save this. Thanks for listening. And remember, follow us at iTunes or on Spotify. And peace, always cultivate your garden.